And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Well, for the last several weeks, I've been uh, mentioning that Trinity Tide is the season that focuses on our sanctification as we battle vice and build virtue in our walk with the Lord. The first two weeks of the season built that foundation, if you recall, built that foundation with God's love for us because we're going to get nowhere in our sanctification if we're not uh, those who are first loved by God and then learn to love God and our neighbor in response. Well, today, the third Sunday after Trinity, we pick up our spiritual weapons and actually move on to the battlefield. Two weeks ago, I had mentioned that we will be seeing a threefold cycle in this process during Trinity Tide, a cycle that's rooted in early Christian philosophy and some of the monastic practices of the early days. And so that begins with purgation of sin, then it moves on to illumination by the Holy Spirit, and finally it goes on to union with Christ. So today begins the purgation part of that cycle with battling the sin of pride. So please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter 5, 5, 1 Peter 5, 5, and that is our epistle passage for the day. You can find that on page 192 in your prayer book, page 192. St. Peter writes, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Well, earlier in this season, we mentioned that our English word love has such a wide range of meanings that it's easy to get confused when Scripture says, for example, God is love. So we needed to look deeper into what the Bible means by love in that particular instance, what it means in greater uh, other, other capacities, and what St. John meant in that particular passage we read two weeks ago. Well, we encounter something similar with the concept of pride in today's epistle. When St. Peter says, God opposes the proud, does pride mean the same thing as when I say that I'm proud of my daughter for what she did in her swimming lesson, or when a carpenter takes pride in making a high-quality piece of furniture? Well, just like with love, we need to properly define our terms if we're going to understand what God is telling us. So we do see in the Old Testament from time to time a word translated into English as pride that connotes dignity. Well, the New Testament has three different concepts, three main words that get translated as pride. And um, it tends to be a little bit more negative in the New Testament. Let's look at these three instances. First of all, we have a pride that speaks of loftiness or high-mindedness. In the Old Testament version of this word, sometimes that might speak of majesty or glory. But in the New Testament, we're generally talking about people who have metaphorically, they're metaphorically standing taller than they really should be standing. They're, they're folks that are... are, are raising themselves up beyond what they should be raised. We see this, for example, in Romans chapter 11. St. Paul uses this sense of pride when he tells the Gentile Christians that they are not to be proud in relation to the Jewish unbelievers who were cut off from the covenant because of their unbelief. Rather, the Gentiles are supposed to realize that their belief, their being brought into the covenant, is only because of God's grace. It's no reason to be proud over their Gentile or their Jewish neighbor. 
Secondly, we have another word that gets translated as pride, and this speaks to boastfulness or something of which one has cause to boast. So this is the pride that St. Paul speaks of in Romans 15 when he says, In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. So this kind of pride can be a good thing, but almost every time we see this popping up in the New Testament, we realize that the ultimate causes for this kind of pride come from Christ. So our pride, our boasting, is really in Christ, not in ourselves. And then we have the third kind of pride in the New Testament, a pride that is arrogance or haughtiness. And that's the sense of pride that St. Peter uses in our epistle today. In classical Greek literature, this kind of pride was often called hubris, and it spoke of a person exalting himself among the, uh, above the gods. So, for example, in one of the Greek myths, we have a wicked king named Salmoneus who in his pride, he develops a machine to make thunderclaps. And then he tells all of his people, all of his subjects, that they need to worship him as if he were Zeus. And then consequently, he gets a severe beat down from Zeus and the other gods. <laughs> because even the pagans realized that one ought not to have excessive pride before divinity. If we look at some other passages in the Holy Scriptures where this same Greek word is used, we can see how we do have this same concept of blasphemous hubris attached to this kind of pride. So we have in Luke chapter 1, verse 51, in the Magnificat, so that's one of our canticles we sing every evensong, the Blessed Virgin Mary sings that God hath shown strength with his arm, he hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. God scattered the proud. In Romans 1.30, we, uh, when he is speaking of people who rejected God and then were given up to a debased mind, St. Paul describes them as slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, so there's that same concept, uh, same word there, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. And then we have in 2 Timothy 3.2, when St. Paul is speaking of the godlessness that would come at the end of days, he says, For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, and unholy. So in all of these things, we see that the arrogant, haughty kind of pride described in today's epistle is antithetical, it is against a life that is united to Christ. The 4th century monk John Cassian, so he um, helped to bring um, communal monasticism. When we think of monastics, we think of what John Cassian brought from Egypt in the east into the western church. And we actually get our purgation, illumination, unification cycle from that Egyptian-style monasticism. Well, John Cassian wrote this about pride. He said, There is then no other fault which is so destructive of all virtues and robs and despoils a man of all righteousness and holiness than this evil of pride, which, like some pestilential disease, attacks the whole man. And not content to damage one part or one limb only, injures the entire body by its deadly influence and endeavors to cast down by a most fatal fall and destroy those who were already at the top of the tree of the virtues. 
So Cassian compares it to a disease like a cancer that attacks the whole body. And he says other, other vices um, only attack one virtue. So the, uh, the vice of lust is going to attack modesty and it's going to attack um, that, that sort of thing. Gluttony is going to attack uh, temperance and, and um, it's going to attack um, uh, being mo moderate in what you do and what you eat, but pride attacks everything. With that in mind, we can see why God opposes the proud, as our verse says. But it also says that God gives grace to the humble. The Greek word translated in this passage as humble speaks to being lowly, undistinguished, of no account, it's actually, in most Greek literature, used in a derogatory fashion. It's not something you want to be. It often causes you to lose face in Greco-Roman culture to have this kind of humility. Nevertheless, in the New Testament, God values humility in his people. So consider, for example, the following verses. Uh, in Luke 1.52, again, part of the Magnificat, our, our Lord's mother, he's, she sings that God hath put down the mighty from their seat and hath exalted the humble and meek. Or we have our Lord's invitation to would-be disciples from Matthew eleven twenty nine, where Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus describes himself with that face-losing humility. Or we have St. James' exhortation to his flock where he says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. That's all the same, the same concept as humility in our passage. Yes, throughout the New Testament, Christians are called to a humility that does not come natural to human beings. We're called to a humility that is countercultural, a humility that is supernatural. So if we look at the next verse in our epistle, we'll see some of the reasoning behind this calling. So 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. St. Peter writes, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on God, because he cares for you. So rather than exalt ourselves with haughtiness, arrogance, or hubris, we're supposed to humble ourselves and let God do the exalting. With his uh, characteristic turn of phrase and bluntness, the Swiss reformer John Calvin has this to say about these two verses. He says, we are to imagine that God has two hands. In the one, which like a hammer beats down and breaks in pieces those who raise up themselves. And in the other, which raises up the humble who willingly let themselves down and is like a firm prop to sustain them. Were we really convinced of this and had it deeply fixed in our minds, who of us would dare by pride to urge war with God? But the hope of impunity now makes us fearlessly to raise up our horn to heaven. Let then this de declaration of Peter be as a celestial thunderbolt to make men humble. That's a good caution. That's a good caution. It does speak to the problem with pride. Who of us would dare by pride to urge war with God? We do indeed need a true godly humility. But if we're honest, 
We all know what it's like to be around folks who have a false humility, <laughs> to, to uh, a feigned lowliness. And isn't that just another form of pride? That's not what St. Saint Peter's encouraging us to. You may have heard, especially those of y'all a bit younger, you may have heard uh, the term humble brag. Y'all, yeah, I see, I see the, uh, the, the, the younger folks grinning. First service, nobody had ever heard of that term before. <laughs> That's okay. A uh, humble brag is where a person disguises a boast with false modesty. So like uh, one, of the, one of the examples um, that you might find from Urban Dictionary. Don't hang out on Urban Dictionary. That's a bad idea, folks. But, uh, but, um, <laughs> but one of the examples they did use was someone, uh, someone saying, Oh, gosh, I stepped in gum on the red carpet today. Okay, really, really, you're, you're exalting you being on the red carpet. Or, oh, I felt so, I felt so idiotic when I was on that TV show today. Okay, great, great. You know, that's that's the humble brag. True humility comes instead from realizing our true state before God and before each other. We realize that we do indeed need God to sustain us. Our colic, for example, we see a humble prayer and it recognizes our need for God's mighty aid from all dangers and adversities, but it also, our colic also recognizes our need to, to, for God to supply the desire to pray in the first place. Even coming before God in humility is a gift from God. We also see Humility illustrated in our gospel lesson. The passage begins with Jesus, uh, with, with the Pharisees complaining because Jesus is eating, um, he's eating with sinners, he's receiving sinners and ate with them. And in their eyes, Jesus had lost faith, face because of who he was eating with. He had humbled himself to eat with these folks. And well, Jesus responds to that criticism by telling two parables about the rejoicing that comes when a sinner repents. And repentance always requires humility. Repentance always requires us to see ourselves as we really are and put aside pride, put aside arrogance, put aside hubris, because there are no humble brags before God. But also notice that Jesus was willing to humble himself to eat with the sinners. And isn't this so characteristic of our Lord? Jesus put aside his glory and he humbled himself to become one of us, to live in perfect obedience and submission to his Father, even to the point of suffering and dying the most shameful kind of death, all for the sake of those whom he had created from the dust. This, of course, is a big part of our call to humility. We're following in Jesus' footsteps. Just as, and just as he was exalted when he rose in a glorified body and then ascended to the right hand of the Father, so too will we be raised in glory and brought before his throne. In the meantime, as we read in our epistle, we are to cast our cares and our anxieties upon God, upon Christ, because Christ cares for us. It's true that humility isn't valued before the world. Indeed, we may sometimes get taken advantage of if we exercise the humility that St. Peter exhorts us to. We may be seen to be foolish or weak before the world and in the world's eyes. But Jesus can shoulder that burden. 
We know his love. We know that the cost of discipleship in this world is no match for the glories and joys that we have to look forward to in the world to come. This humility is, of course, a process. It's something that we need to pray for, we need to work for, we need to trust God for. Because our flesh, our flesh prefers pride. The devil certainly prefers pride. That's what caused him to fall. The world prefers pride. But our spirit, our new man who has been born again by God's spirit, knows the value of humility. And sometimes, just sometimes, the world takes note. Sometimes the Holy Spirit uses our humility to convict the unbeliever and light the spark that brings them to Jesus in faith and repentance, humbling themselves also so that all of us, we all are raised up by Christ and with Christ together in the end. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven.